The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to The Nectar Corridor, a podcast where we explore the incredible world of mezcal, the most emblematic and diverse spirit of Mexico. I'm your host, Nikki Nakazawa. Today, we're driving into the Nectar Corridor itself, talking all about biodiversity and the conservation of the ecosystem where mezcal is produced. The Nectar Corridor refers to the extensive migratory route that female nectar-feeding bats take from the deserts of the American Southwest to Central and South Mexico, all while pollinating the land beneath them. We'll be speaking with conservationist Diana Pinzon about the interdependence between bats and magueyes and the importance of preserving the natural landscape. Later, we'll speak with the agronomist Mario Acevedo, whose focus lies in seed germination and reforestation. I met Diana while she and her business partner Fabiola Torres were in Oaxaca to lead a workshop on biodiversity and the importance of soil conservation to a group organized by Cynthia Villalobos of Aventuras de Mezcal, with whom we'll speak in episode 10. We had the privilege of hosting Diana and Fabi for a lively and enriching exchange of ideas in Logo Chimiwatlan in November, so I was really looking forward to continuing the conversation about their work for today's show. Our conversation with Diana is interpreted by Andrea Aliceda. My name is Diana Pinzon. I am Colombo Mexicana, and I am a co founder of the Sinacantan Project. Sinacantan is a project dedicated to the respect and education surrounding the entire chain of mezcal production, from maguey harvesting to distillation in the town of San Diego de la Mesa, Tochimilcingo, in Puebla. We have a particular focus on the conservation and biodiversity of maguey's. I'm a forest engineer, and I've been working in ecological restoration for 17 years the last eight of which have been in the Mixteca region of San Diego de la Mesa. This community has a lot of agricultural workers from lumberjacks to mezcaleros. But of the 500 or so inhabitants, no one was really noticing the fact that every year they had to walk further and further to find more wild maguey's. This was an indication that their maguey's were in trouble. So in 2014, I started working with a group of women in the community to produce maguey plants from seed. And this is where I met Fabi, my current business partner. 
The project was going well until there was some conflict between the women and the group abruptly ended. But the most active person in the group had always been Fabi. So she came to me and said, I have a plant nursery and a small piece of land. And I said, okay, and I have a little money saved. Let's do this ourselves. And that's how I got started. Fabi also came from a family that's been dedicated to making mezcal for over 400 years. So with Diana and Fabi's backgrounds combined, they were able to create Sinacantan in 2017. Sinacantan is a Nahuatl word that means land of bats. Throughout our journey, we always found that the key to our work is in the maguey's what's happening with the maguey's and how it's affecting all the associated species of the plants. Those are the three pillars of our project. While on the topic of bats, I asked Diana to explain just what exactly the nectar corridor is and why it's so important to the reproduction of maguey. She talked about a correlation between the overexploitation of maguey and the declining population of bats, stressing the importance of preservation, not just of maguey, but of her bat pollinator friends as well. Maguey and maguellero bats have evolved for over 10 million years. It took 10,000 years to have even domesticated maguey. And for the past 15 years, we've really been seeing the decline of the maguey populations in Mexico. So if you put it in that perspective... What is happening with the overexploitation of the species is really a problem that we have to start addressing immediately. There are three species of maguellero bat, but two of those species are in the risk category, according to the Red List of Threatened Species published by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Leptonicteris nivalis is in the category of danger of extinction, and Leptonicteris yerbabuena is in the category of threatened species. Diana went on to explain that the bats and the maguey maintain a delicate symbiotic relationship. As they migrate, the bats seek out plants as places to eat and roost. When sticking their long tongues to feed from the nectar of agave flowers, their whole bodies become covered in pollen, which is then used to cross-pollinate the flowers from other agave plants. Long-nosed bats travel from Arizona and New Mexico each year to south-central Mexico. They're actually always females because they travel looking to reproduce. They begin their migratory route around autumn so that they can live in warmer climates from September to mid-March. So when we start the overexploitation of maguey's to produce distillates, what happens to the bat is that on its route, it no longer finds places to eat. It no longer finds places to perch, to sleep when it has babies. So where are those protected offspring going to be? And the conservation of the ecosystem associated with the maguey actually has a lot to do with this because the bat is the largest and most efficient pollinator. Their bodies are relatively big. They are furry and chubby. And 
when they enter the Megate plant, they're able to shake all the flowers on it. So all this pollen sticks to the little hairs on the bat's body. And since it can fly up to 50 kilometers every night, it can move this pollen over a very large area. If we have wild maguey that have been openly colonized with the help of bats, we have greater genetic richness. We have plants that will survive changes due to climate change. We have more adapted, more pest-resistant plants. So they are two species that really depend on each other. And in reality, if we lose the maguey, we're going to lose the bat and vice versa. So when we drink a mezcalito, we should be very aware of you know, really respecting what we are drinking because the impact on the environment is truly, truly massive. Recently, Diana's team managed to obtain images of maguellero bats in San Diego de la Mesa by attaching small cameras to the plants at night. And this is really important because now we know that part of the bat's migratory route passes right through our community. And a dream of mine is to have more small producers carry out local initiatives like these. Because it's like a, an exercise in citizen science. And once we're able to collect enough data, this will help the people who study bats to analyze how the populations are doing and to learn more about their migratory routes. So whenever I have the opportunity to talk to researchers, I always reiterate that they have to understand and incorporate the issue of the distillate industry into their work. Because if not, the speed at which they are doing things is too slow compared to the speed with which the sector is extracting the maguey. Diana and Fabi are proponents of a farming methodology that conserves the integrity of the ecosystems where maguey is being cultivated, intentionally integrating trees, shrubs, and crops onto the same working land. Diana explains how the project of Sinacantan Mezcal weds her academic training in conservation and agroforestry with Fabi's understanding of the lands and territory of San Diego de la Mesa. I had to really listen to Fabi. I had to hear her stories and then go out and explore the community with her. This was really the only way I would truly be able to understand the maguey ecosystem that existed in San Diego de la Mesa and what had been lost due to overextraction. Each piece of land that we rent has to be analyzed differently because the characteristics of the soil can really change in less than 500 meters. So we do a very particular analysis of each area. If there is a piece of land that 
was once working land, but no longer has any of its original ecosystem, then we use an agroecological approach. And we'll start with the reintroduction of maguey, and we'll mix it with corn, beans, and other native crops. One plant that was causing particular problems in the maguey ecosystem in San Diego de la Mesa was a kind of palm that can be found in many parts of Mexico. This palm is a colonizer, meaning that it takes over any nearby land and can have negative effects on biodiversity, soil composition, and plant and animal life in the area. Diana's original goal was to reduce the population of this palm as much as possible, until she discovered that was having one surprisingly positive impact. En un 80% lo reducimos y solo dejamos pequeños manchones. So we worked to reduce the presence of that palm by up to 80%. But I remember asking, where do the bats perch around here? I don't see any caves nearby. And all of a sudden, Fabi was struck by memory. When she was young, she would shake these palms and she remembered seeing bats fly out of them. And that's when it struck us. In this area, the palms are the resting place for the bats. So even though these plants are colonizers, we can't remove them entirely because the bats rely on them. So far in this podcast, we've talked a lot about how maguey is used by humans, how it's harvested, who harvests it, and how it's distilled. After talking so much about these uses, I was interested in learning more about the maguey's role within its own ecosystems. Mira, el tema de captación de agua, muchos de los One really big issue in this area is water. Many of the maguey's have adapted to drought conditions and You'll notice that the plant itself is formed like a rosette with overlapping circular stems. This actually allows them to act as a funnel for capturing and retaining water. And the maguey also has an enormous capacity to absorb CO2. There's actually a lot of research going into this at the moment. I don't think that we've come to really realize the full impact of maguey in their ecosystems. And this is another thing to consider when purchasing mezcal. You need to take into account the importance of the maguey, along with all the other factors that make mezcal so unique. Once you are able to appreciate it from all these perspectives, you shouldn't be surprised by the price points. Like, the idea that without maguey, there are no bats, and without bats, there is no maguey, just really let that sink in. That alone is a reason to raise the value of our product, right? I've had the opportunity to learn a lot about how mezcalero regions throughout Mexico differ by territory, tradition, or culture, but speaking with Diana helped me make sense of the role that geography plays as well. That is why seed management is a problem right now. Understanding the species in their habitat would give us much more perspective about what we are doing in our territory. And I think that in Mexico, or in Latin America in general, 
rural communities are becoming disconnected from their territories at a much faster rate due to the economic dynamics of the country. In just a decade, we've seen significant change within the community because at some point, everyone wants to produce more and earn more money. No queremos nada, queremos ser inmigrantes ilegales. Do we really want to resort to immigrating, sometimes undocumented, to the United States because literally nothing will grow for us anymore? Or do we want to maintain and conserve our land and stay here? I think that a lot of folks who have had to leave Mexico would give anything to return to their ranch. What we should start doing right now is work with other groups to create change. Through collaboration, we can actually create meaningful and lasting change. Diane and Fabi will continue to offer free courses and consulting to producers from all over Mexico. Their long-term plan is to create a seed bank of endemic magueyes to help in the reforestation and conservation efforts of mezcal-producing communities. Now we're going to speak with my friend Mario Acevedo in the field at his Maguey nursery and on his lands in the municipality of Monjas. He's a farmer and mezcal producer in Santa Maria Velato in the district of Mehuatlan, where I also spend a lot of time. He lives in an area with a very arid climate, poor in topsoil, and speaks to us about some of the work he's doing to combat what he sees as the damaging effects of intensive Maguey monoculture in his community. Our conversation with Mario is interpreted by Antonio Molina. My name is Mario Acevedo Ortiz, and I was born and raised here in Belato. Here we're looking at some seedbeds in a protected space. This is a more favorable environment for the germination of the seedlings. We work with different varieties of wild maguey. Right now we have a tepestate, and we generally select the purest seeds so as not to have to make so many selections at the time of the nursery or transplant. When selecting the seeds, we focus on how native to the land it is and consider how well it will be able to adapt to the climate. And then if we want to be a little more thorough in the selection, then we select according to the degrees of sugar they have, because most of these maguey's are destined for distillation. Apart from distillation, another purpose of seed germination for Mario is reforestation. The maguey is a very noble plant, and hardly anyone notices it. It uses very little water, which is a huge benefit for us in this arid climate. We have learned how it survives in this area, and we help it thrive. They're pretty tough plants. We don't use any heavy machinery to till the land. In fact, we sow by hand, and we only clean what is going to be necessary for the plant. Working this way makes reforestation integral to our process. Mario then took me to a field where he transplanted young agave plants between rows of cacti. Columnar cacti are common in this area, and the fruits they bear are also delicious. They require very little water, so Mario has decided to use them to create terrace conservation barriers. 
Acá en el vivero depende de la variedad. The amount of time the plant stays in the nursery really depends on the variety. This one right here is the most precocious, the Mexicanito. It's a rodocanta, and it stays in the nursery for about five months. The tepestate, which is one of the slowest ones, will stay about 10 to 12 months. So if you compare the two, they were planted at the same time, but the Mexicanito is almost grown, while the tepestate is still quite small. The next step is moving the young plants into the field. Although many people plant in August or September, Marty recommends planting around the weather instead. It's best to plant just before or during the first rainfalls of the season. You think about it. The plant enters a stage of stress at this point. It's been in the ground for about one or two weeks with quite a lot of dry heat. Then when the first rains arrive, it's thirsty and it tends to bloom or unfold faster. In terms of how the magueyes are planted, Mario emphasizes the importance of not disturbing the land too much. We call it a campo travieso, which translates to wild field. The plants go into the field as is. We don't cut anything down or remove anything. This also serves as a form of soil retention, and it goes a long way towards reforestation efforts. There's zero erosion here. These methods of sowing and harvesting are slowly spreading throughout the community. But Mario says that a lot more has to be done in order for significant change to come about. I think it's going to depend on the results of our process. When people can physically see what we are working towards, I think they catch on on this quote-unquote good exploitation or good use of the soil. Mario then took me to a field that is sown using the campo travieso, or no-till technique. The field is teeming with life and is planted with at least four different species of maguey. This field stands in stark contrast with a plot he points out to me on the opposite hillside facing us, which is planted exclusively with espadín, with no other plants to help conserve the topsoil. This field was planted with maguey espadín, and that is what I was telling you about. I think we should raise some awareness about that, because it's always been done that way. People think it's the correct way. But then, when we're only left with espadín, after five or six years, when the espadín is plucked away, we're left with nothing. So the way to combine the crops is doing the opposite. Not just planting espadín, but planting it alongside with some other native plants. So when you remove them again, other plant roots will prevent the soil from eroding. If you look at it right now, that maguey has no roots. When the first rainfall arrives, the ground will be flooded because there's nothing to support it. Then everything goes away all at once. These practices need to be abandoned. As we walked through the field, Mario pointed out other plants, bushes, and grasses that were growing. This is jarilla. We call it chamiso. It's a medium-sized bush and it's used a lot for firewood. It grows really quickly and it's very useful, but you have to take care of it and wait for it to regrow before using it again for firewood. There are endless little plants and there's a lot of grass. It's actually pretty invasive, so we have to keep an eye on it. I was curious about Mario's thoughts regarding the mezcal boom and the intensive monoculture planting of maguey. Does it feel like we're at a breaking point in terms of sustainability? No, no creo que estemos en el, en el punto cero. I, I don't think we are at a point of no return. 
I think that if we can act quickly, there's a good chance that if we take up these more advanced cultivation methods, then we'll be able to see some positive results. It's important to keep the land as natural as possible. If we don't protect them from deforestation, they will retain less and less water and the droughts will be longer. We have to work diligently and conscientiously to not have a fleeting monoculture that will die out in a matter of years. Someone came here a long time ago and he said to us, when you see water scarcity, don't look up at the sky, which is normally what we do. Don't say, oh, there's no clouds, it's not going to rain anymore. Look down, look at the ground. How is your soil? Is it protected? Are you ready for the drought? If we don't protect them from deforestation, they will retain less and less water and the droughts will be longer. So I think that from that point of view, when you start to see what you're stepping on, you should realize if you use some common sense that everything goes hand in hand. What is the use of having a successful rainy season if there's nothing to hold it back? We have to conserve the soil a little more so that it retains water and can supply us in the season when there is no rain. Other than the issue of droughts, there's a growing concern with the lack of local pollinators, who are not just bats. In earlier years, I remember swarms of bees and a lot of different types of bees. The ones known as African bees were very noble. They didn't attack you even when there were hundreds. And during this time, there was abundant flowering and so much life all around. But not anymore. And I think that has to do with the draw. If the bees can't find a water source, then they either die off or migrate. See what I mean about everything going hand in hand? It's all connected. The biggest takeaway should be the importance of diversity. As long as you have a diverse space, you will have many benefits. Even if it doesn't seem like it at some point. I have talked with people who are very against the idea. Why would I want this grass everywhere? And I don't blame them. They would rather put in another row of maguey or whatever crops they want to cultivate. But I don't know how else I can explain to them that it's good to have the soil cover, not to clean it. And also to get involved a little more in the diversity of varieties so that is not lost. Because there are many beautiful maguey's in the area. But when we started to turn towards the commercial objective, these native varieties stopped reproducing. And we almost lost them. In fact, we are losing them right now. And it was really dumb, actually, because right now, we're educating ourselves on taste and flavor. And it turns out that wild maguey's have the most flavor. Mario is helping to conserve and reforest maguey's that used to be abundant in the area. It's a group effort, and more folks are coming together to help maintain a sustainable future for mezcal production. Thank you to Diana and Mario for sharing the important work they do in preserving magueyes and the animals that depend on them. And to our voice actors, Andrea and Antonio. Saludos desde las tierras del mezcal y hasta la próxima.
The Nectar Corridor is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Nectar Corridor team, producer Jackie Nowak, associate producer Rosina Castillo, editors Andres Jimenez and Max Kotelchuk, and researcher Olivia Mayeda. English translations are by Jackie Nowak, with editorial help from Carlin Crosby and Emily Vizzo. Cover art by Alex Bowman. Thanks to Las Nortanitas de Oro for the use of our theme song, Jinetes en el Cielo. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant and Melissa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more video podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone Media at whetstonemedia.com. The Nectar Corridor is originally produced and recorded in Spanish. If you'd like to listen to the original interview, you can search for El Corredor del Nectar wherever you get your podcasts.